And at that point, Jesus hadn't even showed up on the earth yet, at least not in his form that we see him in the New Testament anyway. And it says, And unto him shall be the obedience of all the people, the Shiloh or the Messiah. And then binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. This brings to memory the, the whole... Um, uh, when David, I'm sorry, when Jesus rode in on the on the donkey, um, you know the prophecy in Zechariah nine verse nine. So there's a lot of prophecy about Jesus here, but also that they would that the scepter wouldn't depart from Judah. And now God has already spoken to David, hasn't He? Go with me to First Samuel chapter sixteen. These are anchor points for David because he's in a place right now that we're going to read here in a few minutes, and it won't take a great deal of time to go through it. But he's in a place where, at his, from his perspective, he's not sure what's ahead. But he ought to have these anchors. And they are. They're significant anchors. The Genesis 49 verse 10 is a good one. But notice what happened when he was a young boy, when he was in his teens. It says in 1 Samuel 16, beginning in verse 11, that Samuel comes to Jesse's house to his eight sons and, and, and Samuel said to Jesse, are all your young men here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, and there he is, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, we'll send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Notice who is speaking. God is saying to Samuel, arise, this is the one. I mean, does it get any more confirming than God saying, this is the king that I have designed to be ruling over Jerusalem, over Israel? Do you see that? It's very clear there, right? So this is him, anoint him, for this is the one. And then Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And notice the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And so Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now go with me down to the verse 14 in that same chapter. And it says, um, oh, actually, I think I messed up. <laughs> I forgot. I read, I wanted to go to 1 Samuel chapter 16, the first three verses first, but that's okay. Um, if you look at the first three verses, it's just basically affirming that God is going to choose David. And we looked at verses 11 through 13. Now, go with me, if you would, now, to chapter 23 of 1 Samuel. And again, is that a anchor, a spiritual anchor for David? God having said that to him? I think it is. And the reason I bring this up is because he doesn't know what's going to happen next. But God has already spoken what he's going to do, that you know, it'd be different if God says, you know what, David, you're going you're gonna to have the kingdom for just a little bit, and then somewhere in, you know, toward the latter part of your kingdom, your reign, um, I'm going to have your son deposed. You're going to be deposed by your son. If that was the case, then he would have everything to be concerned about. But the Bible never mentions that. In fact, God never chose any of David's sons other than Solomon. It was David and Solomon. And David had six other sons, and Amnon died because Absalom killed him. Absalom wants to be king. And then once he's dead, we're going to find out there's going to rise up another one, David's fourth son. His name is Adonijah. We're going to see that in 1 Kings. But look with me in chapter 23 of 1 Samuel, because here's another anchor point for David's soul. 
uh, for him, uh, an anchor of faith, if you will. And this was the word of knowledge given, I believe, by Jonathan to David while David was on the run from Saul in the wilderness of Ziph. Notice what it says. It says in verse 14 that David stayed in the strongholds in the wilderness and remained in the mountains in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day. But God did not deliver him into his hand. And so David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. And David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a forest. And notice, then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and he went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. Because Jonathan and David were very close. They were very close friends. They were best of friends. And notice what what Jonathan said to David. He He said to him, do not fear. For the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. And notice this, underline this. You shall be king over Israel. Here, Jonathan, I believe by the Spirit of God, is just encouraging David. David, you're on the the run, you're being hunted, but guess what? You're going to be the king of Israel, and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. I would say that's a pretty significant thing to hear. And especially if David's holding on to it. Because God did make him king, didn't he? So God fulfilled that promise. And so if God's going to fulfill one promise, is he, is he going to renege on other promises that he has made? No, he can't lie. He knows history. He knows the beginning from the end. When he makes a promise and he says, this is what I'm going to do, you better believe it. You can bank all your money on it. He is going to fulfill that promise. Now go with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And here's another anchor to David's soul, another anchor to his faith. Again, because he's sitting over there in Mahanaim after the death of his son. What's happening next? What's happening next? But David had an anchor. He had an anchor. Do you have an anchor? Has God shown you things? God showed David things. These are pretty significant things. And now look what happens in verse 8 of 2 Samuel 7. It says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, so God is speaking to Nathan. He says, Speak to my servant David, thus says the Lord. Notice what God is saying directly to David. I took you from the sheepfold from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. Notice, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house, David. You want to make me a house, but guess what? I'm going to make you a house. And it's not just a physical structure. It's, it's a dynasty. It's a dynasty. And he goes on in verse 12, and he says, when your days are fulfilled, now pay attention to this, put a star next to verse 12, because this is key. <laughs> when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body. Does that sound like something that's yet future? It is. It is. It's yet future. And, 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 and hold on to that thought. I will set up your seed after you who will, who will come, 
not, you know, it's not like it's already happened. You know, it's not like he's saying, you know, one of your sons from previously are going to know. He says, a son who will come from your body, I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Right? So this covenant that God, this is called the Davidic covenant, and this is important because uh, God was speaking to David of a son that would yet to be born of David because at this time there were already six sons from six different wives born to David in Hebron in the first seven years of his kingdom. Okay? So six sons have already been born, well, from your perspective, looking at me, going back in time. All right? So we're looking at chapter 7, but back in chapter 3, verses 2 and 3 of this same book, it gives us the names of those six sons. And Absalom is there. And so is Amnon. And so is Adonijah. But yet we go forward now into chapter 7, and God says, there's someone still who's going to come from your body yet. Not the six before. Do you follow me? And why is that important? Because David had an assurance just on this alone, in this covenant that God had given him, that it's not those sons that were born to him previously. It's one that's yet to be born. And we're still in chapter 7. Solomon wasn't born until 2 Samuel 12, right? Do you follow me? And God was speaking of Solomon, not any of these previous sons. Does you follow me? If you think of the chronology of this, you'll get it. And that's important to understand. Because, again, if you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 3, you'll see a list of David's sons that were born to him in Hebron. And Absalom and um, uh, Amnon are there, and also Adonijah. But God is not speaking to, about those sons. He's speaking about one that is yet to be born. So as you read this, just read it, read it um, chronologically. Just read it. I mean, not, not everything is strictly chronological, but you can read the sons were born to him, and then God gives to David in chapter 7 a promise of a son that would yet be born to him. So he knows that it's not those six sons, it's someone yet. And then lo and behold, God gives him Solomon in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Follow me? And so Samuel, or Solomon, I'm sorry. So Solomon is the one. Not any of those guys. And God is confirming it because God just allowed Absalom to die. So obviously it's not any of them. There's someone yet. And if that's still the case, then that means i got to be back in Jerusalem. i got to have a son. <laughs> so God is not done with David. Do you follow me? That's what my point in this whole thing is to think of where he's at. He's not done with him. And yet he's got some major political battles to overcome because he's sitting on the other side of the Jordan River wondering if his own people, his own tribe is going to accept him. Because they all turned against him and they followed his son. Do you follow me? And so think of this. Put yourself in David's place. And he doesn't know who his friends are and who his foes are. He has no idea who's friend or foe. And think of the uncertainty of that. And yet the Lord's choice for David's, as David's successor was Solomon. 
The Lord loves Solomon. It tells us in chapter 12, after he was born, it says in verse 24, that David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and to lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And now the Lord loved him, and he sent hand a word by the hand of Nathan, the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord. So God had already chosen Solomon. And so now David, I believe, has every assurance that, you know what, I'm over here and I'm feeling horrible. I don't know who in Judah still is with me. I don't know if any of Israel's with me. But I do know one thing. I've got these anchors to hold on to. And that's why it's important when God speaks something to you, your circumstances may not uh, uh, appeal to these kinds of things. But you've got to hold on to those anchors because sometimes it's, it, it, these things can come to pass in a short period of time or it may be years down the road before God brings it to fruition because he can make things change on a dime just like that. I've seen it in my own life. He's done that. And so if God speaks to you, if he's given you a promise, you hang on to that promise. Those are anchors. You've got to hold on to them because the wind is going to blow and it's going to blow you off course if you're not careful. But hang on to the things that you know for sure. And you know this for sure. Everything in here you can rest in. And when he's given those promises, and I just read a few of them earlier, hang on to them. Hang on to them. Those are anchors. All the promises of God that he's made, so many, many, so many Hang on to them. And David, I think, was thinking to himself, you know what? If God is who he is and he's spoken these things to me, I know he's got a plan for me. So let's look at chapter, uh, let's go back to verse 1 here. So David is mourning, and so Joab, his general, was told, saying, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. And so the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard it said that day that the king is grieved for his son, and the people stole back into the city, meaning Mahanaim, that's the city we're talking about, that day, and as people, as people who are ashamed steal away when they flee in battle. And, um, and so, but the king, he covered his face, and the king cried out with a loud voice, saying, Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And then Joab came into the house to the king, and he said, Today you have disgraced all your servants who today have saved your life, the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines, and that you love your enemies and hate your friends. But you have declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants, for I perceive today that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died today, then it would have pleased you well. And here, this is amazing, because, you know, there was, um, you know, the, the army was in great joy because of this victory, right? And now they come back into Mahanaim and they see David just falling apart. And can you imagine that? Usually when they come back from battle, it's celebration time. They're going to build the fires and slay the calf and have a big uh, barbecue, right? And they come back all jubilant and see David just, the whole mood is completely different. It's di very different. And so they're upset, and naturally so. And so Joab, his nephew, who is older than him, he comes in and he starts railing against David. Now, the things that he's saying is true here, and that's the hard thing. But there was no decorum, there was no uh, recognition, I think, of, of Joab being um, more genteel, if you will, uh, choosing his words a little better, being a little kinder in his presentation. Because I think at this point, David and Joab, they had pretty much had an end to themselves. They, they were like, you know what, if I don't see you again, Joab, 
ever again. I think I would be just fine. And I think King David, they were both feeling the same way. The the wire was very thin between them. And so Joab's just going to let them have it, you know. Hey, if you don't go out there and, you know, um, encourage your people, they're going to rise up against you. So the king rose up and he sat in the gate, verse 8, and they told all the people, saying, There is the king sitting in the gate. So all the people came before the king, for every one of Israel had fled to his tent. So no doubt when everybody came out, David would express his gratitude toward them, knowing that what Joab said was right. I mean, they did hazard their life, and David is mourning, and mourning over not only the loss of his son, but really the lost opportunities, his own sin, and not you know, stopping his sons. I mean, much of this could have been avoided. The whole picture could have been very different. So I think there were multiple layers why David was distraught. And so, you know, and, and, and he has to tell these people. He's tore up inside, and he's got to tell them, you know, thank you for all that you've done, but inside his heart is dying. And, you know, sometimes a leader, that's what has to happen. You have to encourage when your own reality is like a hurricane going on inside of you, and yet you've got to portray a, an image and, and, and give thanksgiving and, and be great and grateful, yet in your heart you're just like you want to crawl in a hole and die. Have you been in that way before? Maybe you've heard some bad news and you're at work and you have this meeting that's coming up and you've got to sell this product and you've got to walk in there and wow the investors or whatever you're doing. And, and you just heard news that somebody in your family close to you has passed away. You know, but you know you can't, st- I mean, you could step away from this thing, but maybe, you know, it's a big merge. You, you, things like that happen. And you've got you to, gotta like, totally go against what you're feeling in your gut. And that is a really hard thing. That's what David did. And so now all the people, verse 9, were in a dispute throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king saved us from the hand of our enemies. He delivered us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled from the land because of Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, notice the people of Israel and the the children of Judah, the tribe of Judah, they anointed David's son over him, in place of him, wrongfully. (laughs) And now he... Absalom's died in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing back the king? You know, so they're, they're, they're saying this among themselves, you know. Now that Absalom is dead, we need to bring back the king. And can you imagine how pensive they feel? Because they were all on the wrong side. And now David is coming back. And just put yourself in their shoes. Most kings, out of retribution, would, would kill people for this, for, for treason. But did David do that? No, he didn't do that. So David, verse 11, sent to Zadok and Abiathar the priest, saying, Speak to the elders of Judah, saying, Why are you the last to bring the king back to his house? I mean, David, after all, was from the tribe of Judah. Why didn't my own tribe come and receive me and bring me across the Jordan River in a ferry boat? Why are you the last ones to bring the king back to his house, since the words of all Israel have come to the king to his very house? They should have been the ones. And yet... It was the other tribes, the northern tribes, the the, the tribe of Israel. They were the ones that were inquiring about this, not the men of Judah. You are my brethren, he says, you are my bone of my flesh, and why then are you the last to bring back the king? And and he says, and say to Amasa, now Amasa was um, another of David's nephews, Say to Amasa, are you not bone and uh, bone in my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of the army before me continually in the place of who? The man he loved. 
The man who just did everything David said. No, it was Joab. He did the exact opposite. He, he, he was a very loyal man, but he was very, a bloodthirsty man, a very self-willed man. And so David is now saying, all right, I'm done with Joab. I'm going to put Absalom now as my commander. Wait a minute, David. Are, are you thinking correctly? Wasn't Absalom your enemy? And Amasa was his commander, and now you're going to make him your commander? I can understand you getting rid of Joab. That makes a lot of sense to me. But why are you taking the one who had been confederate against you, you know, had been against you? Why are you taking it? It doesn't make a lot of sense. There's an, but but there's, a, there's a method to his madness. And this is where David's being more of a diplomat, I believe, because if he can bring Amasa or Amasa onto his make him his commander, then he's won the hearts of the others. Do you see the, the, the political part of this? Because Amasa um, was with Absalom and, and the rest of them that were coming against David. So now if Amasa is now David's commander, it kind of gives everybody a warm feeling again. Oh, you know, he's really not that bad. I mean, after all, you know, the commander of the army is now on David's side now. So David is acting more as, as a diplomat rather than doing the smart thing. And so verse 14, So he swayed the hearts by doing this of all the men of Judah, just as the heart of one man, so that he sent this word to the king, Return you and all your servants. And so the king returned and came to Jordan. And, the, and Judah came, finally his own tribe. They come, and they come to Gilgal to go to meet the king, to escort the king across the Jordan. If you were to look on a map, and here's where, uh, you know, here's the east side, here's the Jordan River, and Gilgal, Jericho is over here, and Gilgal is just below it, just a little bit, um, actually it's a little bit north of it, actually. So what David was doing is the, the tribe of Judah was going to come, and they were going to meet him, and they were going to meet him at Gilgal. And so that's exactly what happens here. So verse 16, so as that is happening, Shimei, remember Shimei? The man who was cursing David when he left to begin with, throwing rocks at him, calling him all kinds of names. Notice what happens. I call this eating crow. (laughs) If you were to put a, a title on this next section of Scripture, it's called eating crow or swallowing your own words. So Shimei, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, who was from Baharim, he hurried down and he came down with the men of Judah to meet David. And um, you can look at 2 Samuel chapter 16, verses 5 through 8, and that tells you what, what Shimei had, had done previously, so you can get an idea of what a, how uh, unusual this is. And it's really not unusual, because he hated David. He, want, he would kill him if he could. But now that David's back in power again, hey, David, how you doing, brother? Yeah, I love you, man. Hey, did you get a haircut? Looking great there, man. You trimmed the beard, kind of like in a, you know, a J. It looks like Judah. I mean, that looks really nice. You know? And that's where Shimei was. Now, whether he was genuine or not, we really don't know. But it looks awfully suspicious, <laughs> such as the things that happen. So Shimei comes to meet David. And then there, there were a thousand men of Benjamin with him, and Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, and his 15 sons and his 20 servants at, with him. And they went over the Jordan before the king, and then a ferry boat went across to carry over the king's household and to do what he thought good. And um, 
You know, because the Jordan is big enough, especially at certain times of the year where you need a ferry boat to, to go across. You know, have a pole on each side. I don't know exactly how they did it, depending on the rains and everything, but they had to be ferried across to the other, you know, to the um, western side of the Jordan River there. So it says now that Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king when he had crossed the Jordan. And then he said to the king, Do not let my lord impute iniquity to me, or remember what wrong your servant did on the day that my lord the king left Jerusalem. Remember that, David? Uh, Didn't really mean it, man. I said that the words were coming out, but in my heart I was... Conflicted. I was, you know, I ate something the night before, and I was just feeling kind of agita, and I, I don't know. I just I wasn't myself, and you know, he's giving him this story. <laughs> I know that I. And he says, you know, what wrong I did to you on the day that my king, the Lord, left Jerusalem, that the king should take it to heart. Don't take it to heart, David. Verse twenty. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. Therefore, here I am, the first to come to you. The first. I'm the first to come to you today. And all of the house of Joseph to go down and meet my lord the king. But Abishai, remember, who was Joab's brother, is this guy going to, what do you think he's going to do? He was the one who wanted to take off his head before. When, David, when Shimei was cursing David and throwing rocks, Abishai looked at David and says, can I go up there and just remove his head from his shoulders? And David says, what have I got to do with you, sons of Zeruiah? So now Shimei is trying to butter David up, make amends. You know, I didn't really mean it, you know, that kind of thing. But Abishai, again... He answers and says, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? And David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should be adversaries to me today? Shall any man be put to death today in Israel? For do I not know that today I am king over Israel? And there it is. David is, is, is getting his bearings back a little bit. He's starting to perhaps remember the things that I shared with you earlier and these are, again, our anchors to his soul. So verse 23, Therefore the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king swore to him. He swore to him. And so by doing this, extending mercy to Shimei, he was strengthening the ties with Benjamin and the others. And again, David being a smart diplomat. But why would he do that? How could you know that the guy was really genuine? Of course he's going to come and beg for his life. Of course he's going to say he's sorry. That's what people do when they've been caught in this kind of thing. But David makes an oath and says, no, you're not going to die. And he doesn't. He, David himself doesn't kill him. And it's interesting that later on, when Solomon would be king, in David's last days before Solomon would be king, David sat down with Solomon and said, son, there's some things I need to tell you. <laughs> And you can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. But David basically tells him, you remember Shimei? I made an oath that I couldn't kill him, but you know what? Take care of him. In other words, when the time is right, kill him. Thus David would have fulfilled his oath, but his son would actually kill him. And we'll find out later that he actually did do that. But David forgives, apparently, Shimei, but he doesn't forget, does he? It would have been one thing if David would have forgiven Shimei for what he did and then never spoke of it again. And Shimei will find out in, uh, in uh, 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 5-8, through 8, we're going to see him actually coming to the aid of the king. And when his, David's next son, Adonijah, when he rears his head and wants to take over his dad's throne, 
Shimei is one of those who doesn't stand with Adonijah, so there's some semblance of, hey, you know what, I think I believe this guy. David should have believed him, but he forgave him, but he didn't forget. Because he tells Solomon later, you know what, when, after I'm gone, make sure you take care of him. And he does, unfortunately. So look at verse 24. Now Mephibosheth, the son of Saul. Remember, Mephibosheth was the son of, of Jonathan. Remember, David and Jonathan were close friends. And Jonathan and David made a pact with one another, an oath with one another on a couple of occasions. That David, when he comes into his kingship, that he, that he would deal kindly with his family. And David did. He brought Mephibosheth into his very own, uh, into his house, and he took care of him. Had Ziba and his servants take care of him. He really took care of him, and he honored that oath that he and Jonathan had made. And so notice, Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. And he had not cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day that the king departed until the day that he returned in peace. And so it was, when he had come to Jerusalem to meet the king, that the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? Because you remember, when David was leaving Jerusalem, who was it that came out and gave food and stuff to David and his men? Remember, uh, it was Ziba, the guy who was actually taking care of John, or taking care of Mephibosheth. He comes out on a on and brings several donkeys, and he has stuff laden, you know, raisins and figs and all kinds of stuff for the journey that David and his people are about to make. But Jonathan didn't come out, or I'm sorry, Mephibosheth didn't come out with him at that time. But remember, he was lame; he needed somebody to help him. He can't just get on a horse by himself. He would need help. And so, so David has a very good question. Mephibosheth, when I left, why didn't you come with me? And he answered, he says, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go to the king because your servant is lame. And he has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is alive, or is like the angel of God. Therefore do what is good in your eyes. So now... Mephibosheth is just telling him the story, and there's no reason to not believe him. And if you read back and you see what David did, you know, basically giving all the land of, of, of um, Mephibosheth's, he gave it all to Ziba. You know, in haste and anger and, and believing maybe what Ziba was telling him. So there's a lot of intrigue here, and it's, it's not unlike real life, is it? <laughs> if you have a family... You know this intrigue very well. You see it at your dinner table every night. <laughs> Many people do in their lives. So, in fact, if you look at um, 2 Samuel 16, verses 3 and 4, that's when David gives everything to Ziba because he believes what Ziba's telling him concerning Mephibosheth. So now Mephibosheth is coming to the king now after he has crossed over on his way back to Jerusalem. So verse 28, he says, For all my father's house were but dead men before the, my lord the king, yet you saved your servant among those who eat at your table. Therefore, what right do I have to still cry out any more to the king? And King David said, Why do you speak any more of your matters? I have said, You and Ziba divide the land. 
And this is just really uncharacteristic of David, but I think he, who knows what he was feeling, what he was thinking. He didn't know really who to believe. He wasn't able to corroborate the story with Ziba. Ziba, was this really true? Notice he didn't hold any of these guys accountable. Again, just another, another hallmark of where David was. He, just, he was just resigned and, and kind of checked out. He didn't, I mean, he, he could have cleared the whole thing up and gone to Ziba and say, Ziba, I'm here with Mephibosheth. Tell me what happened. This is what he said. Is, is this true? And if it wasn't, then there needs to, the law needs to be in, in, enacted, right? There needs to be some restitution or there needs to be some uh, consequence for that. But David doesn't. He just moves on. Then Mephibosheth said to the king, rather, um, you, know, you know, David says, you and Ziba, you divide the land, you know, because originally he had given everything to Ziba. Now that Mephibosheth is giving him the story, he's like, okay. I don't know who to believe, so guess what? <laughs> you guys divide it. He gets half, and you get half of the land, and so that's the way it, it ended. And, and it could have gone better if David just had corroborated these stories. So Mephibosheth, notice what he says. He says to the king, rather, let him take it all. And I don't think he said this in a nasty way. I think he was just, he was very thankful and very happy. And he says, you know what, let him take it all. Inasmuch as the Lord, my king, has come back into peace into his own house, and Mephibosheth was just happy to see David come back. He's like, I could care less about those things. You know, there's a man who doesn't have material possessions possessing him. He's just one of those guys like, you know what, David? I, I, I didn't even deserve to have what I had. I'm telling you the truth. And I believe he was telling the truth. And then finally, David's kindness to Barzillai And Barzillai the Gileadite came down from Rogelim and went across the Jordan with the king to escort him across the Jordan. Now Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old, and he had provided the king with supplies while he stayed at Mahanaim. So it's a very generous, very elderly man, for he was a very rich man, it says. Verse 33, And the king said to Barzillai, Come across with me, and I'll provide for you while, you're, while you stay with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How long have I have to live? that I should go up with my king to Jerusalem. I am today 80 years old. Can I discern between the good and the bad? Can your servant taste what I eat or what I drink? Can I hear any longer the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be a further burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way across the Jordan with the king. And why should the king repay me with such a reward? But please let your servant turn back again that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and mother. But here is your servant, Chimham. Now, this Chimham was probably the son of Barzillai. <coughs> Excuse me. Let him cross over with the Lord my king and do for him what seems good. And the king answered, Chimham shall cross over with me, and I will do for him what seems good to you. Now, whatever you request of me, I will do for you. And then all the people went over the Jordan. And when the king had crossed over, the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him. And he returned to his own place. And again, just a, a really wonderful man, you know, just um, willing to give. And he didn't expect anything in return. Just a really fascinating uh, character this gentleman was. Excuse me. Now the king went on to Gilgal, and we'll, we'll finish this up and we'll take communion. I've uh, taken you a little longer than what I would have liked tonight. 
verse 40. Now the king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham, which was Barzillai's son, we believe, went on with him. And all the people of Judah escorted the king, and also half the people of Israel. And just then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brethren, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king, his household, and all of David's men with him across the Jordan? And so all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is a close relative of ours, why then are you angry over this matter? Have we, not, have we ever eaten at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, We have ten shares in the king, meaning the ten tribes of the northern ten tribes. And then there's the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. So they're thinking, you know, we have, what they're basically saying is, we have more um, stake in David than you. We have ten shares because we have ten tribes. And, um, and the reason of, the, of the, uh, the battle between the two of these, you know, their, their anger between one another is, you know, the people of Israel were the ones who who originally wanted David to come back, and his own tribe didn't. But now that the tribe of Judah did, and they didn't tell the others about it, they started to get angry. So you see this kind of tension between the northern and the southern tribes, and what it really is is just a foreshadowing of what's coming ahead. Because after David, then there'd be Solomon, and another 70 years after that, then the kingdom would split in two, and it would be forever split. And so what you're seeing right now is really the foreshadowing, the labor pains of a break that has already occurred back in the Old Testament already, even prior to where we're at now. There, there's been these you know, breaks in fellowship between the tribes. And so the men of Israel answered in Judah and said, well, We have ten shares in the king, therefore we also have more right to David than you. Why then do you despise us? Were we not here first to advise bringing back our king? And yet the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of of Israel. And uh, pretty interesting. And so we're going to see this, um, uh, this tension between the northern and the southern tribes just continuing and continuing. But, but just to look at David's life here and, and just to, to see what had happened to him. And now finally he's brought back into his kingdom. And, and, and just the, certainly the struggle that he had and, and the frame of mind that he was in, not quite not quite the, the best time for David, but um, a time nonetheless that he was restored. And, and again, he had those anchors to hold on to that we looked at earlier. So you may have anchors like that too. And when God speaks to you, I'd encourage you, if you have a journal, write those things down. Because, you know, think, God has spoken to me about certain things. And, and some of these things have taken 17 years. I know sp specifically of one thing where he spoke to me in 2001, and he didn't bring it to pass until 2018. And I had no idea how to get there. <laughs> and he does that. But those are anchors. When God speaks to you, write them down. If you feel like he's spoken to you about something, write it down and just be patient and wait upon him. And it may take time, right? It took, you know, for Moses, it was 40 years. God says, you know, this is what I'm going to do, and it was 40 years. So don't be discouraged by that because God's not so much concerned about time like you are. He's more concerned about our hearts and, and the process of getting us. It's not just he could get us from here to here, but the process is so important because it's in that process that we learn and we grow. You follow? And so be encouraged in that. And, and as we read these passages, know that that was the same for David and God was doing the same thing. 
Because he's no different than you and I are. We tend to put the, the, the people in the Bible, in the history, we elevate them, but we have to realize that they're no different. They feel the same thing. They have the same insecurities. They have the same issues. They've gone through similar things. And, and we're no different. We're no different than they were. We're just people. So if we could have the worship team come on up and um, lead us in a song. And um, again, just come on up and grab the elements and bring them back to your seats. And then we will take it together after the song. Okay? You know, when we, when we take communion, you know, if you think of it, it's, it's more than just, you know, when we get together... You know, we can gather together, whether as a group or as, as people together, and we can commune together. We can kind of come around this, this, the, the, the same ideas and the same heart and everything. But do you understand that communion with Christ is so much more than that? Because it's not even just so much like, like we're communing tonight, but at the same time, there's an even deeper thing that God has done in us because he's indwelt us by his spirit. I mean, can you get more... Can you commune closer than that? I mean, when you have the Spirit of God in you, and, and that's really what these elements are for, is you know, when you ingest something, you're basically saying that I, I believe, I take down in my very being everything that this is about, everything that this stands for, and what, what do these elements stand for? And we know what it, what it is, because when Jesus, that night before he was taken, he took the bread and he broke and he said, this is my body broken for you. And so that's what he did, and that's what we do. And we take the truth of that, of why he was broken. Why was he broken? Well, the Bible said that he had to be. Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and other, other scriptures said that he had to be broken for us. His body was broken and beaten for us. And more than just the beatings, the Bible says that his soul became an atonement for us. It became, he, became, he became sin for us. He was the sin bearer. That's something that no one else in history has ever been able to do. Many people have been crucified, but only Christ was crucified and took the punishment of all of mankind for all time on himself at one moment of time. And so that when we take the, when we take the, the bread, that's what we are saying. We are saying we believe that, Lord, you did that, and why you had to do it. Why did you have to do it? And that you did it. We honor you when we take that, and we take that truth, and you put it down in the center of you by ingesting it. So let's do that. And then that same night, of course, he passed around the, the chalice, the <laughs> with the wine in it. He passed it around. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant. This is... This is my, the, the blood of, my, of, my, of the New Testament, really. And yet Jesus hadn't died yet, had he? He was already, in his mind, thinking, I know exactly what's ahead of me. This has been, for this reason I have come to the earth. And he says, take it and drink all of it. And he goes, do this as often as you will in remembrance of me. And we believe that what he did on the cross, the blood that was shed, the prophecies that have been spoken of, we believe that. And we believe in him and his life. And when we take this into ourselves, we are basically attesting to that truth. And can there be any more closer communion than that? There can't be. Because he's in the very center of you. And so let's do that and let's give him thanks.
So um, why don't we stand together and let's, uh, let's pray and give thanks. And you know, think of that when you go home tonight. Think about what we just did. And maybe read over in the end of Matthew or Mark or Luke and those different chapters that speak of that. And, and just remember what that means. All of it. You put it all together, it's really overwhelming when you think of what he's done and the prophecies that have been fulfilled and his great love for us, that he's not going to leave us as orphans. He's coming back for us. And I hope he comes even before we leave the parking lot today. Wouldn't that be nice? I don't know about you, but I've, I'm pretty much done with this world. I, I, I don't, there's nothing here that's going like, there's no carrot that's holding out to me. Go, oh, well, wait, Lord, don't come back yet. I want to do this one thing. Or, no, I'm ready. I'm ready. At least I think I am. I'm probably, anyway. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you again for just this opportunity to take communion together, Lord, knowing what it means. And, and Lord, taking it right down to the very center of us, Lord, the very sustenance of it, Lord, is the truth of everything that you did. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We pray that you bless us tonight, Lord, as we go from this place and just have your way with us. Bless our day tomorrow. Keep us safe, Lord, and keep us healthy, Father, from all the stuff that's going around, even the colds and the flus and certainly the corona. Lord, we pray for your help and for your shielding of all these things, Lord. Give us wisdom and grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.